0: Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program.
1: Well, hello there. Thank you for coming along today. <clears throat> Congratulations all for being on a very excellent panel discussion. Um, uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the uh, traditional owners of the land we're meeting on, the Gadigal people, and uh, pay my respects and our respects to... Uh, their elders, and all Indigenous people who may be with us today. Um, We're going to talk about political biography, um, and we've got three really excellent panellists here. Paddy Manning has written about Lachlan Murdoch. Um, Margaret Simons has written about Tanya Plibersek, and Nikki Sava has written The Splendid Bulldozed, which won... What was it again? What have you won? Tell us about it, Nikki. Non-fiction book of the year... Yay, team. So, that's really great. And I'm going to ask them lots of really penetrating questions, which I've written down in advance. So, um, <laughs> Political biography, it's, um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because uh, particularly if you're writing about a living person, uh, it can become part of their rise to power, um, the way people see them. Uh, it can influence careers and politics. <clears throat> um or it can be not very complete, and there are all sorts of dilemmas involved in writing a political biography, uh, or or even just writing a political history. Um, I just make an observation, my first book, way back in the early 1990s, um, I spoke to a whole range of people um, who didn't like me very much, including Peter Reith, who <laughs> didn't really ever want to talk to me you know, as a journalist, but because I was writing a book and he wanted to make sure the history of uh, Fight Back and what happened in 1993 was right, he gave me lots of time. And so people have different views about books that they're in than they might about day-to-day journalism. So it's sort of quite interesting. But I thought we'd start off the conversation um, because uh, Margaret's sort of talked about some of these issues uh, in in the preface to her book uh, and sort of put them quite succinctly in a way that can frame our discussion a little bit. I mean, I quite like the fact, Mark, that you start off saying that um, when, she was, when you were con- uh, asked to consider writing Tanya's biography, you didn't leap at the chance, which is very honest. Um, but then you liked the, uh, the fact that you both liked Jane Austen and her family history were sort of interesting, but... I suppose the point that I was really interested in just starting the conversation about was um, you discuss the choices about what you include and don't include in the biography. So I thought we might begin the conversation by me just asking you, and then I might get the others to pipe in about, um, chime in about, you know, what do you include and not include? Yes. Well... um Both the political biographies
2: I've written, um, Tanya and also Penny Wong, have been written with limited cooperation from the subject, but they're not authorised biographies. But the fact that I had that cooperation made it a bit easier, because I firmly believe that with politicians we should draw a line between private and public lives, but where exactly is that line is really a decision that's much easier to make when you know what the views of your subject are. So, for example, Penny Wong, in return for interviews and so on, said it's hands-off family. She didn't want any of her family interviewed at all, and I promised not to approach them. Whereas with Tanya, of course, one of the stories, one of the central stories to the book is also her daughter's story. Um, And she introduced me to her brother and her mother. So, in part, you make that decision with your subject, but I have always, and I've said this publicly in different contexts felt that our political life is the poorer if journalists such as ourselves go barrelling into the personal when there isn't a sufficient public interest reason to do so. But exactly where that line lies is circumstance dependent. There's no question that um, Anna Kutztrotter, Tanya's daughter, um, her very personal story, which she shared with me, is central to where we are politically now. Arguably, if... Her story didn't exist. Tanya would have contested the leadership, may have won. Opinions vary on this. Many say she wouldn't have. May have won the leadership instead of Albanese and might be Prime Minister now. Now, that's lots of ifs and maybes, but, you know, that's a central story which is both intensely personal and very public, and I'm glad I was able to tell it, because if I hadn't, the book would have had a hole in it. So
1: it can be difficult. Paddy... Um, You've written an unauthorised biography of Lachlan Murdoch and he definitely didn't cooperate with you. Is it actually liberating to not have to do what Margaret says and sort of take into account the views of the person? Um, I mean, were there things that you... I mean, how do you make the judgement about what's in and what's not in if you're not able to run it past the person that you're writing about?
0: Yeah, so it's terrifying, yeah. So um, I did spend two years uh, worrying, I suppose, that um, I, it was all going to end in court. Um, and so clearly uh, Lachlan Murdoch is litigious unlike his um, unlike his father. So uh, I was sort of on notice the whole way. And uh, while I had no cooperation from him and no prospect of an interview, I did have an incredible amount of kind of backgrounding from his inner circle uh, that then I um, had to try and work out how to use and attribute um, as I went. Uh, but uh, but I, I suppose it was pretty clear to me. I mean, it's not unlike um, Margaret's experience with Penny Wong. You know, I'm quite happy to respect that, for example, Lachlan Murdoch's kids um, are off limits. Uh, they're not public figures in any way. Um, Sarah, you know, to an extent likewise. Um, you know, there are all, there is always surrounding these rich, powerful people a uh, swirl of gossip and innuendo and you have to sift through that and go, well, if that was true, would it show hypocrisy and therefore be in the public interest, for example, you know, Rumour X about, you know, whether it was Malcolm Turnbull or Lachlan or Nathan Tinkler, for that matter, um, you, you know, there is, there, it is difficult to, to find the line, and you don't really know whether you've found it, um, you, know, you know, you've done the, a good job until the book's out, and, uh, and you either have or haven't got a writ or furor. <laughs> and, um, and, and then you have to wait 12 months before, um, you know, your defamation liability because uh, I think he's got twelve months to sue, and so touch, there's no wood to touch. But uh, yeah, I've still got another five months of anxiety about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nikki, um, we lived through uh, as reporters the um, the Cheryl Kernow story, and um, uh, there was a lot of outrage about the fact that that was eventually disclosed. Um, and you also copped a fair bit um, out of Road to Ruin about reporting a conversation uh, a New South Wales Liberal senator had with Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe reflect on the, where the private and public lives interact.
3: Well, I, I agree with both um, Patty and Margaret that, yes... Um, It is difficult to know where the line is, but sometimes I do believe it is obvious uh, that the personal impacts very greatly on the political, and when that happens, um, it has to be reported, and I think that uh, writers and journalists have a duty to report it. And I know um, my good friend, Laurie Oakes, when he reported about the affair between Cheryl Kernow and Gareth Evans, he was subjected to a fair amount of criticism and vitriol. Um, How dare he um, go there? In my opinion, um, if the leader of one party defects to another party, because she is having an affair with the leader of that other party, then that's a story. (laughs) And that is a critical part of the story, which might in some way explain why it happened. So um, I was fully supportive of uh, Laurie uh, revealing that, but I know he did lose a lot of friends um, after that happened. Um, as did I after The Road to Ruin, I um, had heard about some remarks that Connie Anti wells had made and one of them was to Peter Credlin saying that um, Tony is going to lose the prime ministership and he will be sitting on a park bench in Manly feeding the pigeons and he'll be blaming you for what happened. And uh, Connie had sat down with both of them separately, uh, close to the time of the first challenge against um, Abbott, the empty chair challenge, and said to both of them, the reason your colleagues have lost faith in you and are going to vote against you is because they think you're having an affair. And each of them denied it to her. And I recorded that denial um, and I, at never a point, at never point, ex- accused Abbott and Credlin of having an affair. I was reporting what one of their most senior and trusted colleagues had said to them about the reasons why their colleagues were losing faith in them and why they were going to be in a lot of trouble and probably lose their jobs, which is eventually what happened. So it was in that context the political consequences of salacious rumours that were circulating in the Liberal Party. Now, I thought that was an essential part of the story. But after the book appeared, you know, it was um, as if Armageddon had struck. Um, I was threatened with defamation. I was going to be sued. Andrew Bolt was going to write, you know, a treatise on everything in the book that I had got wrong. I'm still waiting for it to appear. <laughs> um, and I've si- since had uh, friends of Abbott's coming to me and saying, every word in you wrote that you wrote in that book was true, which it was, and it was a part of the history of what happened, why Abbott lasted less than two years in the Prime Ministership. So I thought it was worth writing. My own feeling at the time of the Gareth Evans,
2: Cheryl Curnow thing was that the gallery should have reported it before, because in fact Laurie only reported it after they were both out of politics, right, but I don't know what you think about
1: that. You need to have known about it. Yes, exactly. And, and to have had the
3: evidence. Yes. I mean, we do hear lots of rumours um, all the time. I mean, I, I heard rumours about Christian Porter, for instance, um, before I wrote uh, Plots and Prayers about... ..not about the, the much um, more severe allegation that was made against him, but about him philandering... And um, I didn't write about it in Plots and Prayers. I made a sort of a veiled reference to his career and whether he stayed on track or not. But I had no proof of that at the time. I couldn't get anyone to say it um, on the record. Um, So I decided um, not to report it because I didn't want to destroy his career which it probably would have without any evidence and um, also he had a wife and kids so I was kind of held back by that so you have to know or you have to have someone actually saying it
1: yeah. So uh, Chris Wallace another of our colleagues has just written a book about political biographers so it sort of comes circles within circles and part of the book is about her decision uh, to scuttle a biography of Julia Gillard when it was more or less finished, and she essentially just said, "Look, this was going to wasn't that there was anything particularly explosive in it, but it would probably destroy her career because people would be poring over it for every you know little bit of dirt and everything uh, and she didn't want to be. Part of a move to bring down our first female prime minister, so uh, this is sort of a really interesting question to me this question of you know why why we write, why we write political biographies uh, or other biographies for that matter, um, and you know what do you aim to get out of them? I mean Patty, what do we need to know about Lachlan murdoch? Um, and why, and what made you decide what was important? I don't mean you know what you didn't write about, but you know, do we need to know what his you know what his cricketing average was? I mean, where where are we going with what we need to know about Lachlan Murdoch?
0: Well, I th- I think uh, the reason I took the job on was because I thought uh, it's not because um, it wasn't my idea; it was my publisher's idea, Maurice Schwartz. Um, to, to do a book on Lachlan, and I thought, OK, there's been 50 books about Rupert, but not a book about the guy who's about to take control and is increasingly taking control of the most powerful um, news media empire in the world, arguably. And uh, so I thought the key questions were... Um, ..and they come up a lot uh, when people, you know, talking about the book. is he Is he as smart as Rupert or is he... You know, is he the dumb one? Is that, you know, like people say that all the time about Lachlan? You know, or Liz is the smart one, or James is the smart one. Um, and uh, is he left or right of Rupert? Uh, you know, so what is that? How, how do we... Um, how are we supposed to... What can we expect from a Lachlan-Murdoch-controlled, um, you know, Murdoch media empire? I thought those were probably the two biggest questions. And... Uh, and. Uh, Unfortunately, of course, I can't give you a one-word answer on both of those um, because I spent two years researching it. So I came out with a very nuanced and annoying kind of perspective on both on both <laughs> things. Um, should I give you what I think? So, so I actually think he's a bit underrated. Um, uh, you know. I think part of the reason why he got a reputation on being as smart as he didn't, you know, go to the same... He dropped out of his prestigious New York High School, and, I mean, uh, and in Massachusetts, actually, at, at Andover, and, uh, and went to Aspen Country Day School. So he kind of was, was less academic. But, you know, if you look at Rupert, he wasn't that great at school. Geelong Grammar, Oxford, you know, he was uh, borderline. Uh, and, um, <laughs> but clearly brilliant. Clearly brilliant, right? So there's, I think he's a bit like father, like son in that respect. He's not particularly academic, but, uh, but he has been a bit underrated as a business person. He's got some good he's got some celebrated stuff- ups like onetel and channel 10 but he's also had some real success uh, on some bigger strategic investments that he's made I thought what was interesting about his investments looking at him as a businessman and recognizing that my backgrounds in business reporting was that he hasn't invested in a way that burnishes his political power. So it hasn't been a one monom, sort of maniacal drive for influence, uh, whereas you look at Rupert and it's always about buying the next most prestigious, powerful kind of masthead television station or founding it. Uh, and then uh, on left or right, I, I swear they were... Um, you know, you've got Chris Mitchell's book on the one hand, the you know former powerful editor-in-chief of The Australian saying that Lachlan's politics, and Tony Abbott's best mate, um, Lachlan's politics were usually were more rigorous uh, than any more conservative... Sorry, he had a conservatism more rigorous than any Australian politician and usually to the right of his father. Um, I think there's an element of... Um, you know, we always look at Rupert, but not um, his mother, Anna. She's staunch, traditional Catholic. I think there's an element of that um, in Lachlan, although he, I was told he was not religious. Uh, but, uh, yeah, his, his, the people around Lachlan, who I can't name, because uh, although I spend hours and hours and hours on Zoom with them, um, I can't um, name them, but... They insist, and he has described his own politics as socially liberal but economically conservative, and that that hasn't changed. Um, I think I think he has. He, when he came out here, and I'll finish on this. But when he came out here in the in the 90s, as a 20 year old, he was anti-Hansen, he was pro-republic, uh, he had a um, you know lots of gay mates. Uh, he was you know for all the world like a you know a uh, small L liberal, um, you know, business person. And uh, he was described actually as having a soft left view of the world at that time.
3: None uh, of which is being reflected in his papers at the moment.
0: Which is, um, Just... yeah, which is not how it turned out, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so, um, so uh, yeah, I think he's probably gone through an arc of starting soft left um, and then becoming increasingly conservative as he grows older, which, like, so did Rupert and so did Keith.
1: So, um, w- w- having sort of been sort of ambivalent about writing about Tanya Plibersek, n- w- one, what made you want to write about her, but two, wh- why do we need to know about her? Hmm.
2: Well, the simple answer answers the second question first. And I had to confront this as well with Penny Wong, who was, you know, not only was vehemently opposed to the project, whereas I think Tanya would just have preferred it wasn't being done. Um, you know, the simple answer is these are important and powerful people um, and your voters and that's the way democracy works. Now, obviously, personality is not all of politics, but it's some of it. Uh, personality leads to values and values inform people's political lives. Um, In the case of Tanya, she was, at the time I started work, being spoken of as a future leader of the Labor Party and therefore possibly a future Prime Minister. Um, In the case of Penny Wong, um, she was then leader of the opposition in the Senate and she's now leader of the government in the Senate, often spoken of as the second most powerful person in the government next to Albanese. You know, it matters. These people's um, driving motivations um their points of view, their values, the way in which they work, their competence, if you like. This matters. We need to know about these things. Um, my reluctance to write about Tanya, partly that I had sort of fallen into doing political biography. It's not something I sort of thought I'd do uh, when I was at school or whatever, and I want to be a political biographer. <laughs> um, and I've learnt over doing several um biographies, that it's a really sort of crazy-making and slightly obsessive thing to do. The person comes to occupy most of your waking thoughts. Um, you actually end up knowing in many ways more about them than they know about themselves in some cases. Um, and, um, and, you know, the, I know things about both Tanya Plibersek and Penny Wong which are not in the books because they are purely personal, and it's hard work constantly making those decisions. So my, with Tanya, I was thinking, is she interesting enough? for me to make a decision to spend, really, but from go to woe, about three years of your life thinking about this person all the time. And I wasn't sure she was. I'd sort of watched her from afar, thought, you know, she seemed
1: competent but also a bit bland, perhaps. But is she interesting because of who she is or is she interesting because of what she is? Mm. Is she interesting because she's a senior woman in the Labor Party? I mean, where Mm. where would the balance go?
2: Well, both, I Mm. think. Um, One of the questions, given the fact that she was spoken of as a future Prime Minister, an opportunity which I think has probably passed her by, as far as we can predict, is what sort of Prime Minister would she be? Because she certainly is different, I think, from anybody else who's been in the position to be a candidate for that job. I think her ambition is definitely present, but somewhat ambivalent. Um, She is more of a sort of collaborative person rather than a here's my vision, follow me sort of person. Um, and um, you know that's interesting, and it's also partly the gender thing. If she had become Prime Minister, she would have been our second female prime minister. So how's that going to play out? So that's partly, you know speaks to who she is. Um, but also, I think one of, as I say in the forward, the things that convinced me were her parents' story. I say in the forward that in many ways they're the real heroes of the story. Um, but also the Jane Austen thing, the thing that particularly interested me about her love of Jane Austen, I'm also a massive Austen fan, was that she chooses to identify with Eleanor Dashwood, who is the sense in the title, Sense and Sensibility.
1: Emma Thompson for the people who watch the
2: movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good movie of the book, in my view, but anyway, that's a whole different conversation. Um,
1: some of us are shallow, that's
2: right. Now, for somebody in public life to aspire to a character who represents sensibleness is kind of intriguing. You know, sense is not usually cast as an heroic virtue. But Would you want Kate Winslet being Prime Minister? Just saying. I mean. <laughs> no, we wouldn't want Kate Winslet either. I mean, I actually say in the book that I think she also has a fair dose of Marianne in her. Um, but that became a bit of a metaphor in the book. Um, you know, with the question being, well, if she's Eleanor, who's Mary Ann? And that's a question that echoes both through her personal life and her family life, but also her relationship to the
1: Labor Party. So, so Nikki, um, I remember um, when it, we found out that uh, Peter Van Onselen and Wayne Errington sorry, were, were writing the biography of John Howard and of the Howard government. And everybody went, oh, that's right, nobody's actually written a biography of John Howard. Yet he was the longest standing senior person who'd been in those leadership positions forever. Um, and in, in the same way, I mean, there were early biographies of Keating by my old colleague Edna Crewe when he was still treasurer. There'd been, I think, two biographies of Kevin Rudd before he became prime minister. What is it, do you think, that... Ends up deciding who's going to be written about. I mean, it was sort of weird that nobody had written about Howard, wasn't
3: it? Did well, it is it because
1: everybody thought they knew I him? I guess
3: he didn't like Jane Austen. Yeah. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Maybe look, he, does. he never came across as a very interesting character, <laughs> did he? Uh, um, you know, he—he he, there was very little charisma about him. Um, But he also, he
1: also, I mean... Suburban
3: solicitor. Yeah, we we,
1: we don't... The the log cabin story has become... It became a bit tedious, you know, in the... There was a stage where it was just like... The log cabin story, you know, you think you were badly off? You know, I was born in a hole in the road. It was all that stuff. But he never really was an origins sort of story, was he?
3: No, he was, you know, a very suburban kind of character... Um, his father um, had a petrol station, didn't he? And um, one of the um, things that Howard remembered about his youth was when they burnt um, petrol rations. Well, that's not going to set the world on fire, is it? <laughs> it set a lot of petrol on fire, but that's not... <laughs> so um, I, I think it was that. It was that... Um, and in a lot of ways, I guess, uh, people also underestimated him... You know, he didn't come across as very interesting or charismatic or a person who had interests outside of, you know, politics and suburbia. Uh, so, um, yeah, there you, you hardly ever saw any feature articles written about him. But, um, you know, he was a very different kind of... Uh, character from, say, Paul Keating, um, you know, full of invective and humour and colour and... um, The ramrods. The ramrods. Stuffed Um, ballot boxes. Yeah, yeah, music. I mean, um, Howard's uh, favourite song, I think, was Blown in the Wind. (laughs) Um. Oh, he he liked Bob Dylan for the music, (laughs) not the lyrics, as I call him. And and his favourite movie was uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. So... (laughs) Which is fine. but Thompson's in that as well. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Washy. (laughs) Anyway, um, so um, there wasn't really all that much about him to grab onto. But, of course, once he got into office and, um, you know, showed how much he did relate to suburban Australia and, you know, mainstream Australia... Uh, and how he kept winning elections and outsmarting um, his opponents, then then people suddenly thought, "Oh, maybe there is a lot more to him or a bit more to him, and started writing about him. as it turns out, maybe not. But um, you know it, it, you don't need always a huge personality to be an effective prime minister. And I say that in the nicest possible way about Albanese. Um, He's also a very uncharismatic kind of character, totally, almost totally devoid of charisma, I reckon. (laughs) But um, he does have that interesting backstory about his um, mum and how he's uh, fought to um, get there. But um, he... Again, unlike Keating, he's not especially colourful um, or, or controversial. He's, I think, a very calm and conscientious and diligent sort of person, which all sounds also very boring, but could be and is, I think, one of the reasons for his success and could indicate why he could go on to be more successful because he doesn't have that um, volatility about him. Mm. I still rather like Rats in the Ranks, for
1: those who haven't seen it. <laughs> go and look for it on YouTube, where Anthony Albanese never appears, but he's the best character in the... Well, no, he's not the best character, but he's he's a wonderful well, character. Well, that's right? a
2: bit true. It's a Plibersek story as well because, of course, they grew up together in the Labor Party, was a bit ahead of her. They hold neighbouring electorates both in the same fraction of the faction of the Labour Party. So, you know, writing about Tanya are also writing about Albo in a way, they're sort of foils for each other.
3: And they used to be close, but no longer are, which is also quite Exactly right. So that's
2: a story. I mean, interestingly, Albo gave me an interview for the Penny Wong book, a very good and useful interview. and. Was never interviewed for the Plybisec book, despite multiple attempts. I wonder so, why so, so
1: how much pressure is there um, I mean you've got this sort of uh, you know as Chris Wallace says you know she didn't write the Gillard book, but she also talks in her book about how biographies can be really central to creating a political persona or creating a political story um, and i I like to ask you all about all of that. But I suppose one issue um, that I certainly was aware of when I was writing my book is that there is this sort of sometimes explicit, sometimes not so explicit pressure from the publisher. They want to know what the extract's going to be. They've, they want a sexy bit. Um, and, you know, they want the sort of uh, absolute killer story in there somewhere that's that's really going to sell the book this this is the truth of these things isn't it i mean patty did you feel under a lot of pressure to find some sensational new nugget or did you just ignore that and sort of go well i'm just going to look at this story and work out the best way to tell what i think is the important part of the story
0: oh i think that, yeah there always is that pressure um and you know you know book number six i'm getting better at seeing that coming and kind of going oh okay Um, So, uh, and I was happy to um, get a few scoops into the book um, that, you know, did get picked up in the US, in particular US media about, and the most important one being, um, there's a determination on the part of Lachlan's siblings uh, to reassert control of that business once, Uh, once Rupert passes. So previous reporting had indicated that um, they had, you know, in 2019, according to the New York Times, uh, contemplated selling out to Rupert and Lachlan. So they all, if you get a picture, all of the six kids of uh, Rupert uh, by his four marriages, three marriages uh, that had kids, um, they all have a share um, in the business. And then the four elder kids have a voting share so, Rupert has four shares, uh, the four elder kids have one each. And when Rupert does die, uh, he will, um, those effectively expire. And so then Lachlan's position uh, goes from being, at the moment, he and Rupert can control the empire, um, whatever the other siblings do. But Lachlan will then be one of four. And what I was able to report and establish was that um, there was a determination amongst his siblings to reassert control of the business, Fox and News, and do it in a way which, the words that appear in the book, uh, promotes and enhances democracies around the world rather than undermines them. that would be so interesting. That was an important story. Aren't
3: <laughs> oh, we all oh, watching geez. that on Succession at the moment, oh, yes. isn't it? <laughs>
0: Well, we're going to find out, I think, Monday night, don't we? The, the
3: scriptwriters read you, Patti.
2: <laughs> yes, I
1: don't, I don't remember them all talking about saving democracy on Succession, but I, I, I might have missed that bit. I might have, maybe it's because Emma Thompson wasn't in it. Um, the, um, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop that joke now, but anyway. Um, so there is that pressure for the, um, the story. Um, and we've seen occasionally those, those stories emerge that have really transformed transformed politics and one that comes to mind was David Maher's piece about Tony Abbott and punching the wall which is just when you think about it of all you know all the words that Tony Abbott said all the things he's done but the power of that image and I think David himself was quite devastated that that became the thing but I mean there are other examples I think of Well, the other David Ma one with
2: Kevin Rudd calling the Chinese rat fuckers, which I think um, ricocheted through foreign affairs at the time and probably continues to do so.
0: I I thought actually the better story out of his portrayal of Abbott was the fact that he got elected to the presidency of the Student Representative Council in Sydney University and then had no agenda and did nothing. And um, so he had this wrecking campaign and took over the SRC and then had no policy preference whatsoever. And that is exactly what he did as prime minister. He just <laughs> tore everything down, and then sat there. You remember those news reports, Mark Riley saying there is actually nothing on the cabinet agenda today. And um, and that's when I was typing my Turnbull book out, going, oh my god, I've got to get this done. Fine. Like, kachin, kachin, you know, <laughs> because you could see that challenge coming. Uh, 100%. <laughs> mm.
1: There was also a, a Houston biography, wasn't there?
3: Um, and that was Christine Christwell? Wallace yeah. too. Yeah. No hesitation there. In um, I just want to mention about um, uh, Christine Wallace and, and that book. I mean, I was pleased that she wrote about why uh, she didn't proceed with it. But, you know, the journalist in me thinks that that was not the right thing to do. And um, that if you're writing a book like that, you are actually meant to be writing it for people, for voters, to give them an idea of the character of the people who are representing them or want to represent them. So if you come across information that is relevant to that, that will help people make a judgment, then you should write it and it should be published. Uh, I don't think, you know, that it should be withheld because you think maybe it won't play so well so well out there for them. And in any case, it might not have made all that much difference in the end because Kevin Rudd was out there determined to destroy her and nothing would have stopped that. And it's doubtful that um, that Christine Wallace's book would have made a difference, but it still should have been out there as part of Gillard's story. Yeah. I tend to agree with
2: you, Nikki. though I can... I mean, recently, about about 18 months ago, I was commissioned to write a profile not of a politician but of a journalist. I'm not going to say who. Um, But a journalist who, at that stage, was right in the centre of controversy and being attacked in all sorts of ways, and I did withdraw from that in the end, partly because I couldn't see a way of doing it that wouldn't be distorted, but I think if it had been a politician, I might have made a different decision. It was a very difficult decision. I lost a week of sleep over it, and also a fair bit of money, which as a freelance journalist is no small thing, Um, but I just couldn't see a way of doing it. I thought it was a complex story. There were complex things to be said, and I couldn't see a way of saying them in that climate. So I said, not now. In theory, it's still out there as potentially doable.
3: Well, um, same, you know, with me when I was writing um, Road to Ruin and the uh, Connie Firavanti-Wells stuff. I knew that that was going to, you know, create a lot of controversy and so did she. And um, it was quite interesting because I'd heard what she said um, so I needed to put it to her and I arranged to interview her in her office and she was initially reluctant. She said, um, look, I'll tell you what happened, um, but it's only on background and, um, I, I don't know if I'm happy for you, um, to use it and I said to her, look, you know, I'm not interested in writing and this is what I said to most of the people I spoke to, I'm not interested in writing a book about saying sources said. I want to be able to say who said, when they said it and why they said it. And um, I offered to her to write it all up as it was going to be in the book, to send it to her, to give her time to think about it and, um, and say whether she was happy to go ahead with it or not. I mean, she's no idiot. She knew that that was going to be pretty big and that um, Abbott, who was one of her friends, would probably, you know, cut her off um, as a result of it. Anyway, I sent it to her and I waited for three weeks and never heard from her. And I thought, oh, well, there goes that and there goes my book. You know, I'm not going to have a big, anyway, big story out there that people would um, be interested in. But... Um, she came back and said, yeah, okay, so um, I went with it. But it is very hard to get people to say exactly what happened and then to stand up and take the consequences.
0: I went through a process a bit similar. I mentioned the backgrounding that I was getting. I went through a slightly similar process with the Lachlan book of trying to um, say, all right, well, I... I you know, we spent all this time um, what what can I use? and I would try to I tried to summarize that this is what I would like to use. These are the things that you told me some of it was off the record, some of it was clearly background, some of it we flagged along the way. you might be prepared to say on the record, and put it all in all transcribed, put to them in writing, no time pressure. so the book ran a year late. but the point was at least to, at least to know. Uh, in trying to do a fair and accurate and balanced um, book um, that I could, I, I was on sort of solid rock um, with, with at least their side of the story, you know, and um, it was torture. And, of course, I didn't get very much on the record, but I could at least... It does give you some comfort that you have given them a chance to... Uh, you know, you've put a, a version of it that's not just... Um, another kind of rehash of hearsay. It's actually, um, uh, you know, something they're prepared... ..they would be prepared to stand by, even if they don't stand by it in the end, you know. But at least you've got Connie on the record.
1: Because so, so, there's this... Um, the other thing, of course, is, particularly as journalists, we're tending to write contemporary history as it happens without the benefit of hindsight of knowing how the story ends, which um, which makes makes it also very interesting. I mean, how you... Uh, I mean, I, I know there are so many stories where even the first telling in the print media or whatever about what happened tends to influence the way even people who are involved in the story remember it. You know, they, they won't remember it from their own recollections. They'll remember it from the way they read about it in the paper. And I, th- I think that's sort of one of the really interesting questions. I mean, with my book, it wasn't a biography, but it was a biography of the recession in the early 1990s, and I was deliberately trying to record what people thought then, you know, people who are making the decisions about economic policy, what they were thinking then. And I think there is, um, particularly if you're writing about, a, you know, political drama or an evolving situation, you know, that's it's, it is tricky because often... It, it sort of ends up not being something that's important afterwards, if you, if you know what I mean, but it was really crucial at the time you were writing. So I don't know how you... Um, that's always another issue about the, the dilemmas of these things. Yeah.
3: But it is important afterwards too, because a big part of history, right? How did this happen and why why did it happen and who made it happen... And, you know, as we know, things have a way of repeating themselves in politics where um, mistakes are made and, um, you know, it would be handy sometimes if people actually went back and looked at what had happened before and why it happened and maybe it would be a good idea to do something different, to try and... Do they ever do that, though? Not enough, obviously. (laughs) Not often enough, they don't. Um, it amazes me that they think that just by doing the same thing um, over and over, they might get a different result, and it doesn't happen.
2: Having worked with three politicians or ex-politicians, Malcolm Fraser, Penny Wong and Tanya Plibersek, I think one of the things about the process for them is we all have blind spots about ourselves, right? And sometimes the thing which they find most difficult in the process is the blind spot. Um And, um, you know, I ran into that with all three of them where I would write something, which was my judgment on the basis of the evidence that I was prepared to stand by that's still in the book, so I didn't withdraw it, and they jacked up about it. Um, With Tanya, I'll just limit myself to one. The agreement I had with her is that she would see the proofs of the book purely to be able to check for factual accuracy. I retained the right, obviously, to my own judgments. And, you know, one of the things that she got this email from her saying, you know, most unfair was I said that she wasn't a particularly good orator. Now, Tanya Plibersek is a great media communicator, no doubt about it. If you've seen her on Q&A, you'll know that. But she's not a very good speech giver. If you look at any of her speeches, she, she doesn't do it very well. They're perfectly competent speeches, but they're not great flights of oratory, and her delivery can be really flat. And everybody I spoke to who's seen it agreed with me on that she felt it was most unfair and uh, really wanted to contest it. And I thought, she actually has a blind spot about that, you know. And that was extraordinary. I thought, as a professional politician, she would surely know that that wasn't her strength.
3: And and might actually do something about it to correct it. (laughs) And I,
2: without breaching any confidentiality, I have reason to believe that she might have. (laughs) So, you know, but that's, I think, part of the process for them is... And this happens with all journalism, right? When you do a profile, somebody's self-image is always there's always a gap between that and the way they come across to you, and of course you have that extraordinary power of representing them in the public eye, confronting for anyone, even for public figures,
1: I think. So if you think of, of, across the political spectrum, as I said, you know, you end up with, you know, five biographies about somebody who's actually quite dull, and um, uh, and or, or none. Um, but who haven't we had a? You know, of the current people, I mean, there's been one or two of Albo, as Karen Middleton wrote a biography. Dutton. It's Peter Dutton.
3: Hmm. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Racist publisher, you know. Um.
3: If you can find one. Huh? <laughs> if you can find one. Nikki, Nikki, Nikki. No, I mean for Dutton, you know, to find someone to publish. Uh, uh, Angus Taylor. um, uh, Stuart Robert. That would actually be a good book. Yeah, there is a book in that, I think, for sure.
1: Um, Just as a by-the-by, how how did you get him to say all of that stuff about Scott Morrison?
3: Well, um... I rang him and he never responded. I sent him a text message and he never responded and I was close to finishing the book and I thought, I'll just try one more time. And um, I rang and left a message and he rang me back and um, put it out, all out there. I was, I was staggered. I mean, it, it's clear that there has been a huge falling out um, between them um, because I, I said to him, you know, are you and Morrison still friends? And he said, ha, ha, well, you know, I go back to that old saying, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. (laughs) So, um, and, you know, he... I'd spoken to him for Plots and Prayers as well and he um, gave me a fair bit of information there about the praying, you know, how they prayed together before the... um, party room meeting so we went through um a little bit of that stuff as well and also um Morrison stymieing him on on any number of things so um so that was great and um but the other person I was surprised uh spoke to me was Alex Hawke who was also a very good friend of um Morrison's um but he um He went on the record saying that uh, if it had not been for COVID, Morrison would have been deposed as leader by the end of that year as a result of what happened over um, Hawaii and his doing a runner to Hawaii during the Black Summer fires. So I thought that that was really interesting.
1: Mm. We've got this um, history now of... A lot more political biography and contemporary political biography, but I sort of um, and and I, I think this is a reflection on day to day reporting as well, but much less, shall we say, biography of governments and um, and administrations, and I sort of wonder a lot about, you know, well I have a few thoughts about it, but it's sort of interesting that we don't get. The sort of examination of executive government that we once had. Now you can argue in Scott Morrison's case, he was more or less the executive government. in <laughs> More than, more than, more just, than we knew. More yes. than we knew. Um, but it, it's the idea of, um, you know, we, when I was when I was a young person, we used to all want to know what the cabinet discussion was, or um, you know what the various contending policy positions were. Now most people would. Including me, are oblivious now to what the arguments are in cabinet. And I think that's a real, a real loss for um, political reporting and political biography, if you like, if you use political biography in its broader sense.
2: And not only, that's not only about journalists, we've also lost some of these sort of public intellectuals, people like Patrick Weller, for example, who um, wrote about the Rudd government and, and others. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a whole strand of academia, I think, which has deserted that field, perhaps at the same time as journalists are less active within it. Um, it may be the sort of thing which is best done in retrospect, I think, uh, rather than um, in the firing line. But, you know, a lot of Nikki's work is biography of government as well as of, um, of individuals. To an
3: extent, but um, really... There wasn't all that much in the way of Cabinet process or executive (laughs) government because we had...
0: Not a lot of governing going on.
3: (laughs) Well, we had Abbott outsourcing everything to his um, most senior staffer. All the decisions were made by her in his office. So it wasn't as if um, Cabinet was really relevant to a lot of what was going on. Um, Malcolm was never... He wasn't there really long enough. And Morrison just took over everything, as we know. He was a complete control freak. And uh, Cabinet was uh, superfluous. So maybe with Albanese now, who has actually restored Cabinet processes, we might get more of that so long as we can find people to tell us what's actually happening. <laughs> yeah, still your guts.
1: So I was just wondering um, if anybody would like to have some questions... For our panel,
3: you've all written about powerful people in Australia who mostly are white. So I'm just wondering, like when you're writing them, do you feel that this is race is their blind spot, that they just don't think about race when they do their business or do politics?
1: Sometimes they think about race too much. I would observe, um, but not in a good well, way. That in reference to Penny Wong, who. Of course, um, on one side of her family
2: goes back in Australia about as far as it's possible for white fellas to go, and on the other side of her family is Malaysian Chinese. And I think she brings that awareness very strongly to her politics um, and particularly to foreign affairs, where most of her speeches and so on have been about trying to get rid of this idea that Australia is part of the Anglosphere. Um, Of course, that's a difficult trick to carry on at the same time as you're joining up to AUKUS, which totally looks like an Anglosphere deal. But if you look at the speeches and the way she tries to thread that needle and keep all those ideas in the air at the same time, I think you will see a very clear awareness that Australia's future in this region has to be about our multiculturalism. She says, for example, um, that the world should be able to look at Australia and see themselves in Australia and Australia in the world. Um, So she is actively out there as part of our foreign policy trying to change the way Australia is seen along lines of race. So in her case, at least, I think it's front and centre. Tanya Plibersek, of course, is the child of refugees. Um, they, uh, her oldest brother, who was born in Australia, nevertheless regards English as his second language because he didn't learn to speak English until he went to school. So although you know she's white and blonde and all the rest of it, I think there is a strong consciousness there as well. But in terms of refugee policy, of course, that's been something on which both Penny and Tanya have compromised as part of what they judge it takes to be part of a party of government. But a very relevant question, I think.
3: you want to say something? English is my second language too, I have to say. Um, But, um, look, I think... We do have a much more diverse parliament now with, um, you know, thanks to the last election. And because of the uh, referendum on The Voice, I think the issue of race um, will play an enormous um, part in, in this parliament and in this government and whatever flows from that. So, yes, maybe it has been underplayed um, previously, but I think... That's going to change big time this year and hopefully for the better. And having said that,
1: I think, um, you know, going back to uh, refugee policy over the last 10 or 20 years, basically I think, unfortunately, both sides of politics just sort of want that to go away. Um, Some of them are embarrassed about it. Some of them don't think it's of any political use to them anymore. Um, But I think that is an unresolved question um, as things stand. And um, obviously, The Voice is something where, apart from anything else, it's testing the fact that a lot of white, you know, sort of suburban politicians actually have, you know, like a lot of the community, have never actually met any Indigenous people or experienced um, or seen uh, the sort of diversity of lives they live And um, our conversation as a result is the poorer for it. But ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming along today. Thank
3: you to our panellists. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.